The Bob Murphy Show, episode 204. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show i'm going to take a hiatus from the What Did Bob Learn three-part series to interject this fun interview with Scott Sumner. And then I think next episode will be the conclusion of that other series that I started. So let me go ahead and read from his official bio. I won't read the whole thing. And then I'll say some remarks about this conversation I just had with Scott. So Scott Sumner is the Ralph G. Hawtrey Chair of Monetary Policy at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He's also Professor Emeritus at Bentley University and Research Fellow at the Independent Institute. In his writing and research, Sumner specializes in monetary policy, the role of the international gold market in the Great Depression, and the history of macroeconomic thought. Named by Foreign Policy Magazine in 2012 as one of the top 100 global thinkers, Sumner has published papers in academic journals, including the Journal of Political Economy, Economic Inquiry, and the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking. He's the author of the popular economics blog, The Money Illusion, and he also contributes to EconLog. His work has appeared in media outlets nationwide and beyond. He received his PhD and MA in economics from the University of Chicago and his BA in economics from the University of Wisconsin. So now this is back to me speaking. So Scott is the godfather of, let's say, what's called market monetarism and specifically the idea that the Fed should be targeting nominal GDP growth at a fixed rate, something like 5%, maybe 4%. And in particular, Scott says that the Great Recession, you know, the bad recession that started in officially the end of 2007 in the U.S., but is associated with the financial crisis of the fall of 2008. Scott says, oh, these people like the Austrians, for example, who think there was a housing boom and bust and that somehow you know, these real misallocations of resources necessitated a recession. And then, you know, Bush and Obama's policies made, them, made it worse. Scott doesn't agree with that. He, he thinks it was ultimately the the fault of the Fed, the Great Recession was, and that, yeah, sure, Bush's and Obama's bad policies didn't help anything, but that ultimately the recession was not like the hangover that was necessary because of the binge of the housing bubble years. Scott rejects that completely. So in this interview, unfortunately, we didn't really get time to dwell on everything or touch everything that I wanted to, but we do hit that essential point that namely Scott thinks, believe it or not, that monetary policy was far too tight from 2008 onward, and that that's the way to understand what the heck happened with the U.S. economy in the Great Recession is that the Fed was too stingy, which of course is the opposite of what a lot of people were saying, including me. So that was my goal for this interview was to have you at least understand what where Scott's coming from with that. And in case you only tune into some of these interviews and you're flipping out like, Bob, why are you letting him get away with that? My goal when I have these interviews is not, unless we officially agree ahead of time that it's going to be a debate, like I had stuff in Kinsella on and we kind of knew we were going to debate something, is not to have a debate. It's just, I want you to understand somebody's perspective. So likewise, if you go and listen to my interview with Warren Mosler, 
I disagree with strongly with a lot of stuff he said, but you know, I, that wasn't the point of the interview. So likewise here, I have been a very strong critic of Scott, but his perspective is incredibly internally consistent. And I've long said, if I were going to debate Paul Krugman, I wouldn't be nearly as scared as if I had to debate Scott Sumner (laughs) because Scott's knows his stuff. He's got like this very tightly reasoned theoretical framework that's internally consistent and he has a lot of data to back it up. I think he's totally wrong on some of his things, but again, it's uh, it's an understandable position once you let him spell it out or it's coherent, I'll say. So without, fr- oh, last thing I'll mention, we forgot to bring it up. Scott has a book coming out in July of 2021. So at this moment, as I'm recording this intro on Amazon, it's still you know to be released, but the title is, and I'll link to it in the show notes page. The title is The Money Illusion, Market Monetarism, The Great Recession, and the Future of Monetary Policy. And it's put out by the University of Chicago Press, forthcoming. So if you want to link to that, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 204. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Scott Sumner. Well, Scott, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you for inviting me, Bob. Good to be here. So as we discussed here in the uh, pregame show with all of our technical hijinks, before we could get this thing going, um, I thought the best way for me to motivate this interview, because I know some people might not be aware of your name is, and, and you know your views, is to just explain what I think is a is a true statement about you that might be shocking to some people, and other people will go, oh, "Yeah, that's what Scott did." And then we'll try to backtrack, and it's sort of like movies where they show, a, you know, a climactic thing, and then the movie's a flashback leading up to that point. So, in two thousand, late two thousand eight, right after the financial crisis hit. And people like Glenn Beck were getting on forklifts on his show to show like what was happening with the monetary base. And people on the right, including me, were freaking out about, oh my gosh, Bernanke's insane. What is he doing? He's going to wreck the dollar. You came forth and you your thesis was that the Fed had had at that point the tightest monetary policy since the Hoover administration. And I, I recall a lot of people in the beginning thinking you were crazy but over time, more and more economists came to agree with you. And nowadays, your view, not only in, in what you advocate is and, and GDP targeting, and we'll, we'll get into all that, of course, but the idea that the Fed was too tight following the 2008 crisis or perhaps leading up to it, and that's where the crisis came from or at least exacerbated, is not only is it not crazy anymore, but plenty of mainstream economists and reputable posts have advanced views that are at least sympathetic to that. So number one, are you okay with my summary of what happened historically? Yeah, I think a lot of economists don't go as far as I do, but Uh there's more sympathetic, more sympathy to the notion that policy could have and should have been somewhat more expansionary during that period, right? Okay, okay, great. So then, like like I said, why don't we then back up a little bit? So can you just somewhat briefly, perhaps, because we want to get to the, the meat of the intellectual dispute, but... Just explain, you know, where did you, how did you get into economics and then, did, you know, where you got your degree and, you know, what you were trained, what school of thought, if that's the way you think of it, you were trained in. And then we'll get to how did you come to be one of the, the, the vanguards, at least in the internet age of advancing this view that the Fed was too tight in 2008. Uh, so how I got into economics, um, I think when I was young, I uh, followed the news and I was interested in public policy. Uh, I had read some stuff by Milton Friedman, 
uh, including his monetary history of the United States when I was fairly young. And so I decided to study economics in college, <clears throat> went to Wisconsin and then University of Chicago for grad school. So I was fairly sympathetic to the monetarist tradition at a young age. And mm -hmm. um, I see my work as sort of carrying forth the tradition of what Milton Friedman and others were doing in the 1960s and 70s. Can I ask, did, did you go to Chicago because you were a free market person or did going to Chicago turn you into that? No, I was already a free market person before I went there. Okay. And, and I was in a hostile environment in Wisconsin, I guess you could say, at that time. Uh -huh. uh, in those days, you know, Chicago economists were viewed as a little bit wacky by mainstream economists in places like Wisconsin. Okay. So, um, but I already had... A, free market leanings. And um, so that's why I chose Chicago. <clears throat> and did, did you get, take courses from Milton Friedman there? Unfortunately, he left the, right before I arrived, just okay. the summer before I arrived. So that was kind of a disappointment. Um, but okay. I did have a lot of good professors there and, uh, and, you know, had a good experience there. Do you have any thoughts? I've had a few guests on this show who went through Chicago and that one of the things they talk about is like the Chicago tradition in terms of when people come to present papers, it's pretty combative and, you know, relative to perhaps other departments. Was that on your radar at the time? Or do you, now that you've been teaching in other places, do you recognize that? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, at the time I didn't know much about grad schools or know how to compare it to other places, but looking back on it, I think it was pretty combative. Um, also, I think that, um, the, in those days, probably not today, but in those days, the Chicago approach was considerably less technical than schools like MIT. Mm -hmm. So the, the sort of um, perception people had, I think, in the late 70s was that MIT grad students were better at math and econometrics and, and the technical models. And Chicago economists had better intuition about, say, debating public policy issues and applying economic theory to real world cases, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that's a generalization, but um, I that fit my preferences because I don't prefer to use a highly technical approaches to economic analysis. So I, I yeah, like the intuitive uh, emphasis on intuition mm -hmm. uh, in Chicago at the time. Yeah, what uh, Steve Landsberg brought up to me when, when he was a guest was um, contrasting like the, the questions... I forget what course it was that like a, like Paul that he somehow came up upon questions that Paul Samuelson assigned to his grad students versus ones that like Friedman would give out. And the Friedman questions were things like applying price theory to, you know, something OPEC is doing, you know, how could this be, is this possible or tell a story in which, you know, such and such could happen. Whereas Samuelson was more like, in the Cambridge capital controversy, what did this person say in his paper? You know what I mean? Like, in other words, it was more regurgitating what other economists have said on issues, whereas Friedman was more like, let's see if you can explain how the world works. Exactly. That, that was the emphasis. The exams uh, had a lot of story problems on them rather mm -hmm. than having you work through a lot of equations and so on. Okay. So why don't we then jump forward to, well, let me ask you, so did you, then you were a, a college professor for your job or did you go and work somewhere like in the, in the private sector? I, I'm not um, so totally familiar I, with your background. 
after a couple of years, I finally settled down at uh, Bentley uh, okay. College, now Bentley University, and ended up teaching there for more than 30 years. So I didn't have um, much in the way of private sector experience. I mean, I worked a lot when I was young, but mm-hmm. those were like menial jobs. I worked sure. through college. I worked through grad school. You know, in those days, they didn't pay you to go to grad school. So I had to have a job to pay my uh, living expenses and so on in both college and grad school. But um, I didn't really do much in the way of uh, professional work other than uh, being a professor and a few other small jobs. Okay. And was your dissertation on monetary theory or not? Right. It was on uh, currency hoarding um, okay. and sort of like, you know, the underground economy, how taxes and so on encourage people to hoard currency. So I was estimating how much currency is hoarded in the United States. Um, so it wasn't really a dissertation on the stuff I do now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was money, but it was looking at money almost more from a microeconomic perspective, you know, as a Right. As a tool for tax evasion and not, not in terms of how it affects GDP. But after I did the dissertation, I pretty immediately pivoted into macro, especially mm-hmm. sort of historical research on you know, the gold standard, history of economic thought, um, business cycles, and uh, things like that. So. Okay, great. So I, I guess... Can you give us a little bit of then the the intellectual precursor? So so nowadays, what people call it is market monetarism, but that was a relatively recent term being coined for that. I don't know if you want to call it right. school of thought so, or perspective. Um, uh, what would be a good definition of market monetarism? Well, certainly we carry the monetarist tradition in the sense that we think monetary policy basically determines the path of nominal spending. Uh, I'm personally pretty sympathetic to a lot of Milton Friedman's ideas. He emphasized that low interest rates don't necessarily imply easy money. He has a monetary theory of the Great Depression. Um, He developed the natural rate hypothesis, which suggests that any trade-off between inflation and unemployment is only temporary, that inflation isn't a way to permanently create jobs. And uh, so um, he's a believer that the market economy is basically stable if you have sound monetary policy, whereas mm-hmm. Keynesians, I think, view the market economy as basically um, unstable, needs to be fixed with various government policies. Where I, di- where I differ from traditional monetarists is that um, ideas like rational expectations and efficient markets are a bigger part of my analysis. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, instead of favoring targeting the money supply. I've advocated targeting market expectations of nominal GDP growth. And Mm. I tend to use market indicators of whether money is easy or tight rather than indicators like growth in the money supply. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's why later on when, do you remember, do you know who it was that came up with the phrase market monetarism? Uh, Lars Christensen. Okay. Right. And, and so do you remember the rough time frame of when that label originated? Um, I would guess it was maybe around 2013, plus or minus okay. a few years. Okay. Right. I don't remember yeah. the exact year. Okay, but ballpark. Okay, so just for the listeners, so this, you were, like I say, coming out 
you know, guns blazing in 2008. And then again, I want to spend some time like figuring out how did you get to be there at that point? What was your origin story? But then the views that eventually bloggers came to associate with, oh yeah, that's Scott Sumner's NGDP stuff. That whole framework got labeled market monetarism and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying where that came from and why you're okay with that labeling or that term is it's monetarism in the sense, you know, the, the sort of stuff Milton Friedman talked about and the emphasis on the importance of monetary policy, but then the market adjective, meaning you're much more focused on um, using the information that market prices and the wisdom of crowds. And so, so other things that also did come out of the Chicago school tradition, but more associated with like Fama and so forth in terms of efficient markets hypothesis and um, rational expectations of Robert Lucas, things like that. So deep. Yeah, it would be me, helpful yeah. here probably for me to explain why I became suddenly uh, radicalized in late 2008. So yeah, sure, the previous ahead. 25 years or so, I had assumed my views were pretty much in step with the profession. Mm-hmm. And I was reasonably satisfied with Fed policy throughout most of that period. And so I thought basically the profession saw things the way I did. And mm-hmm. um, I could point to um, a 1999 paper by Ben Bernanke analyzing Japanese policy mistakes. And today that reads like a market monetarist document. Like almost all mm-hmm. of Bernanke's talking points and his criticism of the Bank of Japan are the same as our talking points in the market monetarist community criticizing the Fed later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had assumed that economists believed certain things that were like in the textbooks we talked out of. Uh, one example I often cite is that I use the number one textbook by uh, Frederick Mishkin, and Mishkin said that monetary policy remains highly effective even when interest rates are zero. Okay. Well, in late 2008, suddenly I looked around and I saw my colleagues didn't agree with these ideas. They didn't think monetary policy was highly effective when interest rates are zero. They didn't agree with Bernanke's critique of the Bank of Japan back in 1999. Um, they, they, in my view, put too much weight on low interest rates as an indicator of easy money, even though I could cite numerous statements by Mishkin, Bernanke, many others that low interest rates are not an indicator of easy money. So I saw the profession seemingly um, making some of the same mistakes they made in the 1930s when the theory that money was tight was you know, dismissed by most experts because interest rates were quite low during that period. And it wasn't until the 1960s that Friedman and Schwartz wrote their monetary history of the United States and really put on the map the idea that maybe it was tight money that caused the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Later, that view got to be pretty widely accepted within the economics community, especially by the early 2000s. And when I saw what I thought were the same mistakes being made in 2008, I basically set out to do what Friedman and Schwartz did, which is sort of reevaluate what had happened in the Great Recession and show that it wasn't the inherent instability of capitalism. It was mistakes by the Federal Reserve that had caused money to be too tight and nominal GDP to decline as a result. So I, I saw myself working within a, a, a very well-established tradition. And I know to many people on the outside, it seems like some of the things I was saying were very radical and heterodox. But I think I was just saying what almost everybody believed a few years earlier and for some reason stopped believing around 2008 for reasons that I find difficult to explain. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I can let me cite one example from Bernanke. Uh, in one of his talks, he said that interest rates are not a good indicator of the stance of monetary policy. And then he said, unfortunately, the money supply is also not a good indicator of the stance of monetary policy. For that, you need to look actually at inflation and nominal GDP growth to figure out whether policy is too easy or too tight. Mm-hmm. Something and he, like he said that before he was Fed yeah, chair? Yeah, he said that back around 2003. Okay. Okay. Now, if you use that indicator, inflation and nominal GDP growth, that's where you come up with my statement from 2013 that over the last five years, we've had the, the tightest money since Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a bizarre thing to say, but I was making that claim using the criteria that Bernanke had spelled out in that um, talk he gave in 2003. Mm-hmm. So... And I was using ideas right out of Michigan's textbook, the number one money and banking textbook in America. Um, now, that textbook's been revised. It no longer says that monetary policy is highly effective when interest rates are zero. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you don't mind, Scott, let me just paraphrase and condense what you just said there to make sure the listeners get it, and then obviously you correct me if this is wrong. So back in the 30s and 40s, um, there was a prevailing view that, you know, a Keynesian mindset, and that was sort of this default yeah. view that the, the, you know, the free market, you know, we had basically laissez-faire capitalism, wildcat, you know, no regulations on the stock market, boom, bust, uh, banking panics. And so the free market failed us. And then central banks did what they could. They slashed interest rates all the way down to zero. What more could they try to do? It was real, but they were pushing on a string because, oh, we're in a liquidity trap. And as we know, once interest rates, nominal interest rates get down to 0%, you know, the central banks can't do much more because you can't push them negative because people just sit on cash. And so that's where there's a huge role now for fiscal policy and governments to run big budget deficits. And so that was kind of the view. And so the policy was the free market just screwed up, fell into a black hole. Central banks did what they could, but they, you know, used up their ammunition. They were, their power was gone. And then you needed fiscal policy. And then Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz and their, monetary history of the United States come along and they showed things like, well, no, actually, I think it's M2 declined by one third from like 1929 to 31 or something like that. And so, no, but, you know, look at the the Fed. Yeah, they, they cut interest rates and they, uh, you know, increased the monetary base or whatever, but things like M2 fell significantly. So it's not no surprise that there was a fall in the price level when, the, you know, the quantity of money held by the public collapsed and the Fed didn't, you know, was kind of asleep at the wheel or because of the gold standard, whatever, they, they couldn't do what they needed to do. And so it, at least among right wingers, it went from, yeah, the Fed tried and failed to, no, the Fed actively, you know, it had assumed the role of regulating the macro economy and it totally screwed up. This isn't the fault of the market. It's the fault of the Fed was way too tight in the early thirties. Right. Is that roughly you correct? Said, at least among right wingers. So, you know, in originally monetarism was a sort of right-wing view, let's say, in Mm -hmm. the 60s. By the 1990s and 2000s, um, what's called New Keynesian, which is mainstream Keynesian theory, was actually about 70% monetarist. So many of these ideas were accepted by monetarists. Mm -hmm. I mean, sorry, by Keynesians. Mm -hmm. So... You know, a Keynesian like, say, Paul Krugman in the 1990s would have been advocating monetary policy to stabilize the business cycle, not fiscal policy. And going along with what you're saying, 
when I was at NYU, I don't remember the year, but it, it had to be before 2000. Well, the latest it could have been was 2003 because that's when I left. Paul Krugman came to the, I think it was at the Stern School of Business and gave a talk talking about the Bank of Japan and what he had recommended to them. And he said, you guys need to uh, plausibly or, or credibly commit to the markets that you're going to raise inflation down the road to lower, to get you know real rates lower now. And, and I remember Mark Gertler was like, mm, I don't know if that's going to work. Like he just kind of said it to me <laughs> as he walked out of the room or something after. But the point being, Paul Krugman seemed on board with at least some version of your worldview in the early 2000s. So I can believe you that this isn't, wasn't exclusively by that point a right-wing thing. Right. So as I say, New Keynesian economics was, you know, about two-thirds monetarism. The mm -hmm. one part that continued to be Keynesian was they favored using interest rate targeting rather than money supply targeting. But they accepted many of the other points Friedman had made about the natural rate hypothesis, the role of inflation expectations, the, um, the fact that low interest rates aren't necessarily a sign of easy money, mm -hmm. the fact that monetary policy should be used to control aggregate demand, not fiscal policy, and, and many other monetarist ideas. So again, I was my views from my perspective were pretty much the same as those of prominent uh, New Keynesian economists in the 2000s, before 2008. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, uh, in 2008, much of the economics profession sort of went back towards old Keynesian ideas. That is, they lost faith in the efficacy of monetary policy at zero interest rates. Mm -hmm. They didn't blame the Fed for the fall in nominal GDP. They started advocating fiscal stimulus. Um, and so you got a, a real change within the economics profession, but and then I became viewed as a real heterodox thinker, but I was sort of the same place I was a couple of years earlier. It was really the profession that moved, say, to the left, if you will, on macroeconomic right. policy. Okay, if you don't mind, let me, because I think this is a critical point, let's make sure the listeners get this idea about the stance of monetary policy cannot be judged by just looking at interest rates. So there's this sort of conventional view that, Oh, if the if the Fed cuts interest rates, they're being easy. You know, they're trying to stimulate, and then the problem is, oh, if inflation starts getting out of hand, then the Fed's got to raise rates. And so that's kind of where we get this notion that cutting rates means loose policy, and raising rates means they're tightening. But and this is a point you say that Milton Friedman made, and this is partly what misled the Keynesians, like Joan Robinson, is why the Keynesians thought in the '30s the central banks were really loose when actually what they were doing was consistent with the money stock literally falling, which, you know, it sounds kind of tight, um, is that, among other things, nominal interest rates include expectations of price inflation. And so if you had really tight money, well, then investors don't need to worry about high price inflation. So they're willing to tolerate low nominal, and especially like if it's in, in a bad economy. So if the real rate's real low because the economy's awful and you're not expecting very high prices, in fact, you're expecting falling prices, let's say, like CPI, you would be willing to lend money at a pretty low nominal rate. So the fact that the Fed has a target of 0.25% by itself doesn't mean money's really loose because that's consistent with a world in which the, TED is, the Fed is super tight. Right. So that and the, the difficulty here comes from the fact that um, money affects interest rates in many ways. Mm -hmm. When people think in terms of low rates being easy money, they're actually thinking of what's called the liquidity effect, where you add liquidity to the economy that lowers interest rates in the short run. 
But money also has other effects on the economy, which push interest rates in the opposite direction. The most famous is the Fisher effect, which says that if you you know, create a lot of money and push inflation higher, that will raise interest rates because lenders will demand a higher interest rate to compensate for the inflation. And this is a well-documented effect. We saw this in America in the 1970s where inflation rose sharply and so did interest rates. We've mm-hmm. seen it in many other countries around the world. So for that reason, it's clear that you can't simply equate nominal interest rates with um the stance of monetary policy. Otherwise, you'd be in the absurd situation where a hyperinflation country would have tight money because they have high interest rates, which makes right, no right. sense. Yeah, now, so that's a great example. some people will say, well, then you can use the so-called real interest rates, which strips out the effect of inflation. You can subtract mm-hmm. inflation from the nominal interest rate to get the real interest rate. And maybe that measures the stance of monetary policy. But Bernanke, for instance, denied even that's a good indicator. And I think he correctly did so because monetary policy also affects uh, real interest rates by affecting the business cycle. So for instance, if you have a tight money policy that pushes the economy into a depression, once you're in the depression, there'll be very little demand for credit. Businesses won't be borrowing to expand. People won't be buying new houses. And with little demand for credit, even the real interest rate will fall to a low level. So in the mid-30s and also in 2009, even real interest rates were relatively low because there was relatively little demand for credit as the economy was so depressed. So because interest rates affect um, the economy in so many different ways, uh, it's a very, very misleading indicator. Uh, I use this phrase, never reason from a price change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in microeconomics, you might say, You should never say the price is high for product X so consumers will buy less because maybe the price is high because the demand curve shifted out. In that case, consumers would buy more. So any price can be affected by a shift in either supply or demand, and they have opposite impacts on quantity. Similarly, interest rates can go up for one of two reasons. Uh, It could go up for because of a tight money policy which would reduce investment, or interest rates could go up because of a surge in business uh, enthusiasm to invest, which increases the demand for credit, and that would be associated with more investment. Uh, Same thing with exchange rates. Um, Exchange rates might go down for one reason, which would reduce a trade deficit, and they might go down for another reason, which would increase a trade deficit. So we should never start our analysis of any issue by looking at a price without thinking about the forces that cause that price to change. That's why I prefer to look at um, other indicators like nominal GDP growth. Um, but in any case, my view that interest rates are not a reliable uh, indicator of monetary policy is actually pretty widely held among economists. But nonetheless, I do see some economists slip into you know, it's it's easy to do when you see the Fed cut rates. It's easy to just sort of assume money is getting easier without thinking about why those rates are actually falling first. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, le- can I ask you, let me, on that narrow point, it, there's, there's two different interpretations one could have of what you just said. So let me ask you to pin it down. Are you saying... Other things equal when the Fed cuts interest, like the target it has for the federal funds rate, let's say, that's 
a move towards easier money, but in an absolute scale, money still could be tight? Or are you saying an even stronger claim that actually from time one to time two, if the real rate has fallen a lot and the Fed cuts rates, but not enough, money could actually be tighter even than it was before? Yeah, so um, this is really tricky, so I'll try to phrase this carefully. <laughs> okay, I even confused myself when yeah. I just said that, but I think I said two distinct things there. So a lot of economists believe what really matters is where the interest rate is set by the Fed relative to what's called the natural or equilibrium interest rate in the economy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if the Fed cuts interest rates, its interest rate target, other things equal, that probably will make money easier. Okay, so if on a given day the Fed announces a cut in interest rates, other things equal, that will probably make money easier, right? The second point I'm going to make might seem to conflict with that, but listen carefully. Most of the time when the Fed is cutting interest rates, money is getting tighter. Now, how can I justify that second statement? As follows. Most of the time when the Fed is cutting interest rates, it's doing so because the equilibrium interest rate is falling in the economy, say during a recession. And generally when the Fed cuts interest rates, it does so too slowly. So usually when the Fed is cutting interest rates, the equilibrium interest rate in the economy is falling even faster. So Fed policy is actually getting tighter even though the specific thing the Fed is doing is nudging it in an easier direction. Okay? Okay. I, I could use an analogy of driving a car. I might be going along at 70 miles an hour, and I come to a, uh, you know, a big mountain, and I'm a little bit slow to react as a driver, let's say. So I start pushing harder on the accelerator, but the car is actually slowing down because I'm not really fully compensating for the fact that I'm now going up a mountain. Mm -hmm. So my action of pushing the accelerator does make the car go faster, other things equal. But times when I'm pushing the accelerator, the car is often going slower than when I'm just going at a more steady pace on a flat piece of ground. Do you see what I'm doing with that analogy? Yeah. And yep, I totally. think that's often what happens with the Fed. Conversely, there are often times in the 60s and 70s when the Fed raised interest rates, but not as fast as the equilibrium rate was rising. So inflation continued to accelerate and the Fed was sort of falling behind the curve. It was raising rates, but the equilibrium rate was rising even faster due to inflation. So there definitely is a grain of truth in this notion that when the Fed cuts interest rates, monetary policy becomes more easy or expansionary, other things equal. But it's also true that many periods when you see a series of rate cuts, monetary policy is effectively becoming tighter because they aren't cutting rates fast enough to meet up with the rapidly falling natural rate of interest. Okay. So great. that's a hard thing to mm -hmm. kind of wrap your mind around because it seems like two contradictory statements, but they can actually be reconciled. Right. No, I think it's good. And I like your driving up the mountain analogy. I think that's good. Okay. So let, let's, the, I, I want to hit it a different way to get people to understand the sense in which you were saying monetary policy was too tight from 2008 forward. Um, so I think people can get how, yeah, Milton Friedman and Schwartz looking at the 30s say 
yep, interest rates were fell to zero, short, short-term rates. And the Fed even increased the monetary base, like in the early 30s, let's say, or at least depending on which period you're looking at. But look at M1, M2 declined, and that had to do with bank runs and things, if people understand how that works, that the public can affect measures mm-hmm. of M1 and M2 by pulling money out of the banking system. And so even though the Fed was pumping in a bunch of you know high-powered money, it was enough to offset trends in what the civilians were doing with their bank deposits. And so the absolute stock of money held by the public was shrinking. And so plausibly, you could see how Freeman would say the stance of monetary policy isn't really enough information. Look at what's going on with M1 and M2. That's really, you know, duh, prices were, or that's, that's you know, tightening a policy. So we shouldn't be surprised prices fell and that, you know, unemployment's going up, especially in conjunction with Hoover's crazy policies of keeping up nominal wage rates. But not, so now in 2008, though, and this this is my concern, even it, it wasn't merely that, oh, the Fed cut interest rates down to zero, looking at monetary base, looking at M1, looking at M2, everything's way up. And so I'm saying how, and the, and the way you, and so then why don't you justify, you're saying, okay, but even those aren't enough information uh, to say money was loose because you looked at a different metric. So can you right. explain, you know, so- Okay. Go into there. Like, why, so why isn't even if M1, M2, monetary base are all going up through the roof? No, policy is still too tight. Right. So um, because Friedman and Schwartz's view is much more widely accepted than mine, let me uh, compare the two and, and just see where things are different in 2008. Okay. So there's actually more similarity than a lot of people realize between the Great Depression and the Great Recession. In both cases, the monetary base started out very tight. Uh, in 1930, it fell in the United States. And in America, in late 2007 and early 2008, the growth rate fell to zero. So it didn't actually fall like in 1930, but it had been rising throughout the early 2000s. And then for a period of about 10 months, there was no growth at all. So the growth rate in the monetary base fell to zero. That would be from July 2007 to say May 2008, that period. So that's pretty similar to the Great Depression, a slowdown in the monetary base growth. Then after 1930, the monetary base in the US started growing rapidly. We even had something similar to QE in 1932. Um, And after the middle of 2008, or really after September, I guess, the monetary base in the U.S. started growing even more rapidly than it had in the Great Depression. You had the huge QE programs. So this is what makes a lot of people incredulous about this idea of, of tight money, because here's the Fed pumping all this money in the economy. And when we use the term monetary base, just to be clear, we're talking about money actually produced by the, the Fed. This is currency mm-hmm. in people's wallets and also bank reserves that are held um, by commercial banks. Right, but, but so not that's money created balances. by the government, and that did explode after uh, September. But that basic pattern of, of very tight early in the downturn, followed by mm-hmm. a, a huge surge, is similar between the two depressions, 30s and 2009. The difference, as you pointed out correctly, is in the 30s, the broader aggregates that include bank deposits like um, checking accounts, savings accounts, and so on, fell sharply in the early 30s, even when the base was increasing uh, uh, in 31, 32, 33. But this time around, the broader aggregates went up. And the difference, in my view, 
is due to the fact that in the early 30s, people were very fearful of bank failures. So they pulled money out of the commercial banking system. And that sort of explains one of the reasons the bank deposits went down. And then the Fed didn't do enough to offset that, to just Mm -hmm. be clear. Now, with no worry about losing uh, your bank deposit because it's federally insured, uh, during a recession, uh, a bank account is is a nice, safe source of liquidity. So people actually in many cases, prefer to hold wealth in the form of money versus riskier assets like stocks during a a deep downturn. So the demand for um, broader forms of money like checking and savings accounts was much higher in 2009 and 10 than it was in the early 1930s when people worried about bank failures. So that is a, a, a real difference. And using Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's framework, they might disagree with my analysis because the fact that M1 and M2 didn't go down a lot um, is obviously different from what occurred in the 1930s. But let me just point out that not only do I not think M1 and M2 are particularly useful indicators today, even people that disagree with me, other you know mainstream economists tend not to focus on M1 or M2 any longer. So in the Keynesian community, they look at the difference between um, the actual interest rate and the the equilibrium or natural rate of interest, for instance, as their indicator of the stance of monetary policy and so on. So although it might sound very odd that I'm claiming money was tight during 2008 and 9, if a mainstream economist actually tries to debate me on that point, they they kind of struggle because if I if I say to them, okay, well then what's the indicator you use? Like, you know, point to what you're using as evidence that money was easy. If they say M1 and M2, I'm gonna say, well then how come you never use that in any of your other analysis for whether money is easy or tight? And how come you're always saying that's unreliable when you debate mm-hmm. monitors? If they say right interest rates, I'd say, well, it's it's very well established that interest rates are not a reliable indicator because of the Fisher effect. If they say, well, then I look at the difference between the actual interest rate and the equilibrium interest rate, then I can point to academic studies that suggest that even though the interest rate was low, the equilibrium interest rate was negative during that period, maybe as much as negative four. So if you're using that kind of new Keynesian framework that compares the actual interest rate to the equilibrium rate, that says money was tight because the actual interest rate, even at zero, was above the equilibrium interest rate, which is estimated by some to be sharply negative during that period. Mm -hmm. Then they would usually fall back on the argument, well, maybe there's nothing the Fed can do about that. Okay, that, you know, we can entertain that debate too. But if we're just looking at indicators of the stance of monetary policy, then what you find is the sort of obvious criticism of my position was like, look at interest rates, look at the money supply. On closer inspection, those critiques don't really hold up all that well. I mean, you can make them, but you're not going to find much support among even other conventional economists that otherwise disagree with me because they're not going to put a lot of weight on the monetary base as a good indicator of what the Fed's actually doing. Let me, let me just point out one thing here. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that base growth came to a complete stop in late 2007 and early 2008. So if we're really to believe that the monetary base is the true indicator of what the Fed is actually doing, it's concrete steps it's taking, 
then why was the entire economics profession, both liberals and conservatives, pretty much silent on the fact that base growth slowed to zero during that time period of late 2007 and early 2008? Why was no one paying attention to that fact? I didn't even know that it occurred until I went back and looked at the data. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was kind of surprised to see that base growth had stopped during that period right. because no one, including myself, was even paying attention to the monetary base. Now, of course, when QE began, QE is nothing more than ballooning the base up, right? You're buying a lot mm -hmm. of assets and adding base money. Then people start paying attention to the monetary base. Then they cited base money as an indicator that that you know money was easy because the Fed's adding a lot of base money to the economy. But that was a very uh, you know ad hoc uh, sort of thing to do because people simply hadn't been paying attention to the base for decades. And even Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz had denied that the base was a useful indicator of the stance of monetary policy. So, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly willing to entertain the notion that my you know, definition of tight money is a little bit unusual and so on. But I don't really think the language here is as important as the content. If people want to say to me, what you're really saying isn't that money was tight, it's that it was tighter than it needed to be to ensure 5% nominal GDP growth. I'll say fine. Okay. If you want to say what I'm really saying is money was tighter than it needed to be to ensure nominal GDP growth kept going up at 5% a year in 2008, 9, 10, that's fine. I, I personally think that um, it's, it's also fine to just say money was relatively tight, but um, what we have here is that economists, biz, um, you know, pundits, journalists, everybody's using terms like easy and tight money without any clearly defined notion of exactly what those terms mean. Like exactly what does easy money mean? Mm -hmm. When you say money is obviously easy, are you referring to interest rates, M1, the monetary base? Well, all of those give different readings. Right, Late right. 2007 and early 2008, interest rates were falling. So money looked easy by the interest rate indicator, but base growth was slowing, so money looked tight by the monetary base indicator. It's a, it's, mm -hmm. it's a real mess. Right. So let me, by the way, I was looking at what the M1 thing was doing while you were, <laughs> I wasn't like checking my email in case you saw my eyes moving. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, it, it was interesting. So let me throw this out like a, a if I were in your class and trying to do a pro Sumner view on an essay, I might argue this way, that if I was just looking at M1 and the you know percentage, the one-year percentage growth in M1, and it was pretty flat, you know, bouncing around a little bit above and below 0% for a while up until like the beginning of 2008. And then it starts rising rapidly and it gets up to like 15%, which was the highest it had been going back to the 80s. So somebody like a, you know, Someone who wants to say, oh, the Fed's doing a lot and pumping money in or, or allowing, they could, could point to that. If we talk about right when Sumner's saying it's real tight, it's really loose, but then couldn't you say something along the lines of, in addition to what you else you've said, is, well, no, because it was actually, by if you want to look at M1, it was pretty tight going into 2008. Then once the crisis started, interest rates fell to zero. So the opportunity cost of holding actual cash, you know, exactly. dropped. Right, so the exactly. demand, and everybody's freaking out. So of course everyone's going to rush to real safe liquid assets, like namely literal 
money in the checking account balance that's FDIC insured. And so couldn't we just be seeing that, no, the demand to hold actual currency, whether in the form of actual physical currency or, you know, checking account balances exploded when everyone's freaking out and interest rates fall rapidly and the Fed was just accommodating that. And so that's, that's another reason why M1 and M2 growth is not the definitive end of the story. You can imagine scenarios in which those could grow, but yet not grow enough to offset some other chains. Just like the examples you were given with in a hyperinflation, interest rates going to 100% doesn't mean anything if prices are going up 2,000% a day. Exactly. And, you know, uh, ironically, uh, I think that Milton Friedman was right about most things, but the one thing I think he was wrong about was that we should say target M1 or M2 growth at 3% a year or whatever. And that if we did so, velocity would be stable enough that that would produce a stable economy. And I mean, I think that it, it was a plausible argument to make based on the data he was looking at for the Great Depression and American monetary history in general. But I think by the 1980s, a lot of economists were increasingly skeptical of that. So many of his other ideas about monetary policy did become accepted, but that's the one that really didn't. And and unfortunately, that caused monetarism to be sort of um, shuttled aside. And uh, I think we've forgotten a lot of his other valuable contributions. Um, you know, he, and by the way, Friedman towards the end of his life actually became more sympathetic towards targeting inflation directly rather than M2 growth um, mm-hmm. in some statements he made around 2006. But um, where Friedman was really ahead of the profession was like in, in the late 90s, in looking at the situation in Japan, he was sort of dismayed. He's saying everybody says money is easy in Japan because interest rates are near zero. But actually, that's an indication that money has been tight, past tense. In other words, when you've had tight money in the past, that slows an economy and the slowing economy puts downward pressure on interest rates. So the Japanese story of the late 90s, in Friedman's view, was the same as the American story of the 1930s, where a tight money policy pushes an economy into deflation and pushes nominal interest rates down Mm. close to zero. And also, if I remember that discussion, not only did he say that, but he was lamenting, like, I thought all my colleagues knew this from the 30s, and yet I see them mischaracterizing what's going on. And so that was exactly my reaction in 2008. I looked around and thought, well... I, I thought all economists believed that monetary policy was highly effective when interest rates were zero. It's right in the textbook, or it was in the textbook until right. Michigan removed it uh, from the newer editions. Okay, so I think we've done a good job of explaining why focusing on interest rates, certainly monetary base, even M1, M2, is not necessarily you know all you would need to know whether central bank right. policy is tight or loose. Why do you then say, if we're going to pick something, let's pick and GDP growth. Right. So I'm, I'm a pragmatist, and I believe you, you pick things that are useful. So uh, in my view, an economy does best in a macroeconomic sense when nominal GDP growth is fairly stable. Um, that's not a... Can, can you define what, what that is? I did have David Beckworth on, but for yeah. people who'd missed that so, one, what, um, what do you mean by nominal GDP? So real GDP is the physical amount of goods and services produced. So that's the one that links to things like living standards. When real GDP goes up, you have higher living standards, you know, in general. Nominal GDP growth is the, the money value of everything that's produced at, at current prices. 
Right? Mm-hmm. So to give you an extreme example, in 2008, Zimbabwe had a lot of nominal GDP growth because they had hyperinflation, right? Their output was right. very expensive, but their real GDP was going down because they were in a depression. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so nominal GDP growth does not adjust for changes in prices. It's right. just to, total so, amount of dollars spent on good final goods and services. Yeah. So a lot of times, the reason I, I, I mentioned Zimbabwe is one criticism I get is that um, people are accusing me of almost a tautology. Like I say, if we stabilize nominal GDP growth, you know, we'll have less recessions or something. And they'll say, well, mm-hmm. that's a tautology because recessions are just fluctuations in nominal GDP. No. In Zimbabwe in 2008, we had billions of percent increase in nominal GDP when real GDP was falling. They're very different variables. But here's why people do think it's a tautology. It's true that for countries like the United States and Europe and Japan, um, over the business cycle, nominal and real GDP tend to move together. They're somewhat correlated with each other. Mm -hmm. That's because spending shocks show up and have real effects in the economy. And because they're correlated with each other, people tend to think of them sort of in the same terms, even though they're fundamentally different variables. Nominal GDP is a monetary variable. It's, in my view, a good indicator of monetary policy. And real GDP is, is as I say, a measure of sort of living standards. It's what we're really interested in, in some sense, in terms of um, our economic goals. Hey, everybody, let's take a break from the discussion to mention that if you like this show and you want to hear more episodes or a higher frequency of episodes, then please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to see some of the special goodies you have there. If that's not an option for you, then uh, just share some of these episodes with people you think might like them. That also helps. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to the show. So um, go ahead and ask me another question. Okay, so we, we know what nominal GDP is now. It's like right. total spending. And so you're notion is is what that if we keep nominal GDP growth at a predictable steady increase or a rate, mm-hmm. positive rate, then um, that's as good as we can do in terms of not having the central bank screw things up. So there could still be if they do bad tax policy or, you know, there's an earthquake or something. Yeah, we can't do anything about that. But in terms of not having monetary policy also right. cause business cycles or exacerbate them, that's the best goal. Right. So, you know, obviously the competitor target is inflation. And you may wonder why is nominal GDP growth better than inflation? Well, inflation can be impacted by both supply and demand shocks. And those have very different effects in the economy. So uh, with a supply shock, inflation goes up and output goes down, like in 1974 in the OPEC embargo. Mm -hmm. With a demand shock, inflation goes up and output goes up, like the late 1960s, when there was a strong aggregate demand in the economy. So they're very different kinds of situations. And um, if we target inflation, we're implicitly treating supply and demand shocks as if they're the same thing. Uh, In fact, what you'd really like to do when there's a supply shock is actually allow prices to go up a little bit if it's an adverse supply shock and output to go down a little bit because the higher prices produce a needed reduction in real wages. Like a negative supply shock makes a country a little bit poorer. If you don't allow real wages to fall, then you'll get a lot of unemployment. Okay. So 
if you target inflation, you're not really uh, creating a situation where real wages has a necessary decline to keep employment up. On the other hand, nominal GDP is much close, more closely linked to the labor market. So I think of nominal GDP as like the total resources that companies have to pay workers. It's the total spending mm -hmm. in the economy. And I use the uh, metaphor of the musical chairs model of unemployment. Like when there's a fall in nominal GDP, it's like you're playing a game of musical chairs and you suddenly take a couple chairs away. Some of the contestants end up sitting on the floor, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if nominal GDP falls, firms have less money to pay workers, their wages. And since wages are kind of sticky or slow to adjust, if you have less revenue being earned by businesses, you can't hire the same number of workers at the same wage rate. Now, one option would be to just cut everybody's wage 5%, but that's really difficult to do. So in practice, firms tend to lay off workers when nominal GDP falls. So the optimal, the best performing economy occurs when nominal GDP grows at a slow but steady rate, enough so that you get reasonably full employment, but not so much as to create high inflation. <clears throat> now, you can argue about, you know, what what number should that be? I used to talk about 5% a year. Now I tend to talk about 4% a year. Uh -huh. uh, in my view, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You just want the number to be stable. But I picked those numbers because those were numbers that I thought would be roughly consistent with what we were already doing. So we were already targeting inflation at about 2% in the early 2000s, at least implicitly, not, not formally yet. Mm -hmm. And real GDP growth at that time was about 3%. So if you add 3% real to 2% inflation, then 5% nominal growth is enough for roughly full employment and hitting the 2% inflation target. Uh, in recent years, our trend rate of growth has fallen to 2% from 3 And so now I usually cite 4% as the figure. The basic idea here is that the real grade of growth in the economy in the long run is not determined by monetary factors. It's determined by good public policies like free market economies, uh, regulations, low tax rates, help, things like that. So the supply side of the economy determines the long run trend rate of real growth. So when you set a nominal GDP target, you're, you're basically taking that real growth rate as a given. And to the extent that your target is higher than the trend rate of real growth, you'll get inflation, right? So if you want like 2% inflation, then you should set your nominal GDP growth rate at 2% plus, um, you know, the real rate of trend growth. But I would even go further. I, I buy into the analysis of George Selgin, which is that inflation isn't really the variable we should be caring about in the first place. The, the things that matter for welfare are, are more closely related to nominal GDP growth, or at least maybe not exactly that number, but something close to nominal GDP growth. And um, rather than saying nominal GDP growth is like inflation plus real growth, uh, we tend to say and GDP growth is the real thing. Right. Inflation is just something that federal bureaucrats estimate with models that have never been clearly formulated or specified, like ask someone to explain how we decide how much of quality improvements is real growth and how much is inflation. And I defy you to find any economist 
who can come up with any coherent explanation for how to figure something like that out because all our models are based on utility, which is a psychological concept that we can't even measure. Like they right, have no right. way of knowing at the Bureau of Labor Statistics how much my new computer makes me happier than my older computer. But they would have mm -hmm. to know that to figure out how much of my new computer was inflation and how much was real growth. So, I mean, there's fundamental problems with even measuring inflation, whereas nominal GDP growth is something that can be measured more clearly. It, it, it's more closely related to the health of the labor market. And one final point, it's also more closely related to the health of the financial market. Earlier, I said that nominal GDP is the resources that companies have to pay wages. Well, most debts are also nominal. They're not real index debts. So we have nominal mortgages, we have nominal bonds, we have all these nominal debts. And nominal GDP is the resources that individuals, companies, and governments have to repay nominal debts. And guess what happens every time nominal GDP growth plunges? You have a financial crisis. In the early 1930s, nominal GDP plunged. You had financial crises all over the world. In, say, Argentina in the late 90s, early 2000s, nominal GDP plunged. You had a financial crisis. 2008 and 9, in many countries, nominal GDP growth plunged. You have a financial crisis. Over and over again, you find that when nominal GDP growth plunges, people have less revenue or income to repay nominal debt, and they default. Now, when that occurs, it's almost always misdiagnosed because... Obviously, who's going to be the ones that default first? In any scenario, it's going to be the ones that, in retrospect, have made the worst choices. Okay, like there's think of like a bell-shaped distribution of the the um, how sensible debts were in retrospect, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to have some risky loans and some safe loans, right? And at, at Obviously, you're going to have a cutoff where some loans will be just considered too risky and they won't be made at all. But there's going to be a distribution. Some mortgages are safer than others. Some sovereign debts like Germany's are safer than sovereign debts like Greece, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going to have a distribution of risk. When there's a sharp fall in nominal GDP, the loans that go bad will obviously be the ones that, in retrospect, were the riskiest. The subprime mortgages in America the Greek sovereign debt in Europe, things like that. And, you know, obviously some of those debts were loans that never should have been made. But I think it's a mistake to diagnose the problem of like, there are these loan crises because um, the, the, you know, um, people just made a lot of foolish decisions. Like there is this right. underlying theme of nominal GDP is interacting with those foolish decisions, mm. right? And that's true of any problem that occurs. But, you know, with COVID, people said, well, you know, it's, it's old people, people with obesity and so on. Well, it, yeah, there's, there's a, given you have a disease, people that are weaker in some sense are more likely to suffer from the disease than others. But still that COVID epidemic was a specific shock that, you know, caused these problems, right, for people's mm. health. And then it, it shows up more with people with weaker conditions that are more likely to be affected by that uh, epidemic. 
And I think that's sort of what's going on here. Nominal GDP declines are a shock that tends to create financial crises. And um, it, it shows up in areas where there were perhaps public policy mistakes made in the U.S. You know, financial system. There was public policy make mistakes made in Greece in terms of how much they borrowed. No one's denying that. But um, it's, it's also true that uh, there are these common underlying themes here and that steady growth of nominal GDP makes these kind of severe financial crises less likely to occur in my view. So those are the two major motivations I have for nominal GDP targeting. Stabilize the labor market because wages are sticky. Stabilize the financial system because people borrow in nominal terms. Okay, great. And that actually ties in, especially the, the first point there. With, I was going to ask you, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, uh, Russ Roberts on Econ Talk, I think, had had a guest on and, they, and it's apparently Milton Friedman at some point, I don't know if you've heard this anecdote, Scott, somebody pitched the idea. I think the guy's name was Bob because in the, the quote I saw, Friedman uh-huh. comes back and says, Bob, it's something like I'm paraphrasing. The guy said, oh, why don't we have, you know, nominal GDP grow at 5%? And then Friedman said, oh, well, that sound, found, sounds fine and good. But what happens when you're in a situation where real GDP falls by 1%? Is the public going to tolerate, you know, you're going to say 6% inflation is optimal in that regime? And I think you're saying yes, because that if the real economy is falling by 1%, you need real wages to fall because we're not as productive yeah. as we think. You know, something's so screwy I, there. I wrote a, a- a paper mm-hmm. on you know what Friedman would have thought of market monetarism. By the way, mm-hmm. I I did consider that in some other statements. He's actually pretty sympathetic to a lot of our ideas, but th- there's definitely a few quotes where he was skeptical of nominal GDP targeting. I would argue that he hadn't really thought through the issue very clearly, and that I think he might be persuaded by our arguments. And let me just um, uh, play the devil's advocate here and and um, throughout this thought experiment. Suppose um, a Keynesian was arguing with uh, Milton Friedman about his proposal to have the money supply grow at 3% or 4% a year. Okay. And the Keynesian said to Milton Friedman, but Milton, if your policy is adopted, what would happen if velocity would, was constant? Like what would happen if velocity never changed? Wouldn't that be horrible? And Friedman would probably scratch his head and go, well, what do you mean? Uh, we, we monitor sort of assume that velocity would be stable if the money supply growth were stable. That would be a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the monetarists want to happen. Right. That's what they think would happen if money supply growth was stable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say that uh, we have the monetarist 3% or 4% money growth target adopted. Every year, money growth is exactly the same. Velocity never changes. What does that mean? It means nominal GDP growth is constant. That's NGDP targeting. Mm -hmm. NGDP targeting is the monetarist prescription plus the assumption of stable velocity. Would Friedman really think that was a bad outcome? Not in that case. You know, I don't think he really thought through you know, it's it's easy to think through that, you know, what if it was negative 1% real output and, and so on. I don't think he really thought through the implication of what he was arguing, because if, if that was really a bad outcome, 
then it would dramatically weaken the argument for money supply targeting because the monetarists were basically assuming that if you target the money supply at a constant rate, velocity will be stable. Well, that produces a stable path for nominal GDP. Okay. Um, I don't know the monetarists' views enough to, to say whether they would... So you're saying, at the very least, if Friedman got his way with what he wanted, it would, as an offshoot, happen to produce stable end GDP growth. So in practice, you two would recommend, even though your motivations are different, what the Fed would end up doing would be the same, at least yeah, along I mean, the equilibrium like, path? That, that thought experiment he gave, you know, like, what is his solution? So inflation's too high. So does he favor reducing the money supply to bring inflation down? I thought his whole argument was, Keep the money supply growing at a stable rate no matter what. So it's it's I think it's just an issue that he didn't give careful thought to. And um I think oh, his can, can I ask criticism you this, of that is inconsistent yeah. with his advocacy of stable money supply growth. It, it, That's my is opinion. this one yeah, is this one way of saying what you're saying, Scott, that we can come up with a, a hypothetical economy in which doing what Freeman said, where whatever M2 grows at 3% a year could happen to be consistent with, depending on what happens with velocity and everything, real GDP falling 1% and CPI going up yeah. 6%, that could be consistent with M2 going up 3% or whatever. Yeah, like so, I could say yeah. to him, uh, oh, you advocate uh, money supply targeting uh, 3% a year, but what if your policy led to 6% inflation and, you know, uh, you know I'll, well, I'll, actually for 3%, we'd have to pick different numbers. So, um You'd only have a 3% nominal GDP target in that case. But what if prices went up 4% and output went down 1%? Okay. Well, what would he say in that situation? Would he say, well, that's fine. I still favor targeting the money supply growth at 3%. Or would he say, well, we have to do something different then? So to me, that's an equal problem for money supply targeting right, and right. nominal GDP targeting. I don't see how it's a problem for one, but not the other. Right. But, but even more strongly, I think you had a better, an even stronger response. It's not merely that you're saying, well, yeah, that is awkward, but hey, it's awkward for you too, Friedman. But also you're saying, yeah, push comes to shove. If we were in a world where for some reason real GDP fell by 1%, I wouldn't want the price inflation, you know, if it normally it tended to be 2%. Yeah because of 3% positive GDP, real GDP, I would want prices to rise faster than wages because that's exactly what we want. In a world where the economy is shrinking, real output is shrinking, we want workers to become cheaper to make sure employers don't just start laying them off because presumably there's been a productivity shock. Exactly. And that's why the economy is shrinking. And so what you need to have happen is real wages fall. And if nominal wages are sticky for various institutional reasons, the only way to make nominal wage, or sorry, real wages fall is if prices, you know, consumer prices rise. And so that's exactly what we want. So far from being a bug, you're saying, no, that's a feature. That's actually yeah. what we want. Well, that's what uh, Iceland did um, in the Great Recession. Um, both Iceland and Ireland had banking crises. Um, Iceland's was even worse, I think. Um, but Ireland was stuck in the euro, so they didn't have the option of allowing a lot of inflation as a way of mm -hmm. you know, cushioning the blow and reducing wages, real wages. But Iceland was able to devalue their currency sharply. So they actually had quite a bit of inflation, and that kept the nominal GDP growth at a more reasonable level. And so they didn't have nearly as much unemployment as Ireland had. 
Um, so okay. yeah, there's country and Israel also, I believe, um, did something uh, kind of along those lines. But you know, in in Iceland in particular, I mean, is the small economy and it, the banking system was mismanaged, so they they had to take a real hit to their living standards. And the easiest way to do that is to allow prices to rise. Um, you can also do it by cutting wages sharply, but it's just harder to do that, especially in a modern economy. Okay. Okay. Great. So, it was one way, of perhaps paraphrasing this, is that given that there is a real shock, that the best way the central bank using monetary policy can help the world deal with that, we have to get poor. There's no way around that. No, no yeah. nothing. You, the central bank does can change the fact if people just are the productivity's gone down for some reason. Whether there's an earthquake, you know, there's less oil than we thought we had, or we discover oil causes global warming or whatever. Uh, taste change, people discover, oh, wait, cigarettes cause cancer, so now all the tobacco crops are, aren't worth as much. If there's real shocks like that, the best way to accommodate that is to let uh, prices rise to reduce real wages or, you know, the real income of tobacco farmers or whatever we're talking about. Yeah, in some because cases. Because of nominal rigidity. Is, is it true that if, if prices were instantly, like if wage rates were as instantly adjustable as commodity prices, then it wouldn't be as big a deal? Right. Well, I mean, it really, if, if, if everything was flexible on wages and prices, we wouldn't even be studying money. Nobody would care about it. It'd be an unimportant thing. Right. It would be as unimportant as um, when they do a currency reform in Mexico and go from a thousand old pesos to one new peso and everything adjusts immediately a thousand mm. fold, right? Instantly. But, you know, that's not the world we live in. Um, I mean, I do get a lot of, People asking me, well, why don't, why isn't the correct policy response to make wages more flexible or prices more flexible? And I mean, I kind of have mixed feelings on. That. On the one hand, sure, to the extent that we can make wages and prices more flexible, let's do so. I, I'm opposed to minimum wage laws, for instance, or rent controls. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how much that would help. Um, I do know that even back when wages were more flexible, they were never really completely flexible. And I also don't know how much of the reduction in wage flexibility that we seem to see today is due to regulation and how much is due to the evolution towards different kinds of jobs and so on. Let me give you an analogy here. For instance, in the product market, prices are less flexible. And I think we know why, because the types of products where prices are flexible are commodities. And the commodity share of the U.S. economy has fallen very, very sharply in the last 100 years. Not a little bit, but a lot. Like commodities used to be a much bigger share of our economy. And therefore, the price indices were much more volatile. They responded much more sharply to shocks. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, commodities are a small share of our economy. Maybe something like that has occurred in the labor market, where the kind of jobs where you can easily cut pay 10%. I don't know what kind of jobs those would be. Maybe like day workers in a, in a farm harvesting vegetables or something. You know, mm -hmm. those jobs are less important perhaps. But even 100 years ago, um, like in the 1921 depression, wages did fall sharply and relatively rapidly, but still not quite rapidly enough to prevent uh, about one year of really high unemployment. And then 
And then unemployment fell pretty quickly because the reduction in wages brought equilibrium back to the labor market, you know, fairly rapidly. And, you know, the same kind of drop in nominal GDP today that we saw in 1920 would probably produce a more severe recession because wages are less flexible today than 1920. But even in 1920, you know, it was a pretty severe recession for about a year. So I don't think there was ever a period where nominal shocks didn't matter. I mean, you know, David Hume back in 1750 was talking about monetary shocks having a temporary effect on employment. Mm -hmm. It it just seems like there's always been a certain amount of, um, whether it's money illusion or sticky wages, sticky prices, something that prevents the economy from adjusting immediately to nominal shocks, as it in theory should. I mean, if you just look at economics as an abstract sort of model, money should really not matter for real variables, right? I mean, if you double the money supply, the only thing that should happen is all, all wages and prices should double. It shouldn't make a country richer. If it did make a country richer, any poor developing country could just get rich by printing a lot of money. So that basic intuition that money is just a measuring stick and doesn't really affect real variables is certainly true in the long run, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it doesn't seem to be true in the short run. and And the business cycle can be a pretty big short run problem in certain contexts. Okay, um, we've come up against the time. Can I ask you one more? Sure. Okay, and then you can answer whatever, whatever length you want, and then it'll be endogenous. The, the length of this interview will let you do de- So my, the last big question I had for you was, I, I think you've made a compelling case here for, uh, given that we have a central bank and it's going to do something, you know, doing nothing is not an option, even if it does, quote, nothing, if it exists, you know, institutionally and whatever, it's doing things. So do you... Is your optimal thing having a central bank that targets, you know, level targeting of NGDP growth at such and such percent? Or are you saying, would you be open to, you know, having, getting rid of the central bank and having free banking and whatever, and whatever the market outcome would be? It's just, well, that's not going to happen by next Thursday. So that's why Scott Sumner has the views he does. Well, there's a couple of questions here. I think because of network effects, it's probably better just to have one type of money in a country for most purposes, most transactions. Mm-hmm. And, and just to anticipate criticism, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people holding Bitcoin or whatever, but I think people find it convenient to have a lot of wages and prices denominated in one specific asset, U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. You can hold other you know, monies as an asset or whatever, but it's a convenience effect, network effects. And if you are going to have a single type of money, um, then there has to be some kind of policy, even if it's a private sector monopoly on money. So, you know, you could imagine a country where a consortium of like, say, Canada, where the four biggest Canadian banks work together to have a single type of money, and it's private money, and it's, but they would still need a monetary policy, some policy for determining how much of that money is in circulation, right? Mm-hmm. And if they did so, I would recommend they do nominal GDP targeting for Canada because the banking system of Canada probably performs in a more healthy way if the economy is more healthy, right? So mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the Canadian banking system should want nominal GDP growth to be fairly steady because that'll produce a healthier economy and maybe larger bank profits. So when I'm talking about monetary policy, I'm not necessarily talking about a government policy. I'm talking about the policy of, Whoever controls the the 
measuring stick, the, the unit of account, the thing that we measure prices in terms of, right? So if there is a single unit of account for convenience purposes, there has to be some kind of policy to determine that the value of that thing. It could be you could link it to gold. That's a policy, right? You could you could have a fixed quantity of that thing, like uh, you know, Bitcoin, or at least in the long run, it's fixed for Bitcoin. There, there's different policies, but anything involves some sort of choice. And um, I also would mention that I favor uh, letting the market determine things like interest rates and quantity of money. Um, through a nominal GDP futures market. So it's not that I have this grand faith in government bureaucrats playing God and figuring out exactly how things should be done. I don't trust them. I think that uh, nominal GDP is a good, stable growth is a good outcome, but I don't necessarily trust central banks to get us there. And that's why I prefer a futures market approach where essentially the market is estimating the amount of money and interest rates required to hit that target. If I could just push you a little bit, one more. Mm-hmm. I, my understand, I haven't looked at it recently. I think though George Selgin, and I don't know if Larry White goes along with this, has argued that in the sort of free, you know, total government has nothing to do with money or banking. So people might use gold as the actual, you know, medium of exchange, but then banks issue claims on that and it can be fractional reserves. Mm-hmm. But the banks just left to their own, just with contract enforcement and stuff like that, their profit maximizing behavior would lead to a system that roughly has total expenditures growing at a fairly predictable rate. Right. How well, do you gold feel about is that? Then, yeah, in that situation, um, gold is becomes essentially the medium of account, the thing at which prices are measured in terms of, and then you can model the gold market. But um, I, I'm not as much of a fan of, of the gold standard as uh, Larry White, for instance, But um, and his views may be sort of mixed or nuanced on that. But uh, I would say that, uh, so I don't completely buy their argument about um, that a market would produce a good outcome in in a situation of gold or a fixed monetary base. But I'm not necessarily opposed to banks having the role of creating currency if it is tied to some kind of macroeconomic regime like nominal GDP targeting. And how that would work, you'd have to do a lot of thinking about that. But um, you could have um, some kind of a base money that's redeemable in some sense in the nominal GDP futures contracts. And then have um, banks be free to issue private bank notes that are redeemable into that base money. I mean, there's ways of making it so that um, the banking system could get much more involved in producing money in innovative ways and I'm not necessarily opposed to those. I You'd have to think through exactly how those things would be done. But I mean, basically, um, in my way of looking at things, nominal GDP futures contracts play roughly the role that gold played in the old gold standard. Like in the old gold mm-hmm. standard, you had enough money and the interest rates were set at a level where gold prices were stable. In my regime, you have enough money and interest rates are set at a level where nominal GDP futures prices are stable. So you're replacing gold mm-hmm. with nominal GDP futures prices. So yeah, that in that regime, you can certainly have a, a very large role for the private sector. Um, I guess I still sort of envision the government is like picking the target. But again, mm-hmm. I could imagine a consortium of like five big banks in Canada 
taking over from the government and, and choosing the target among themselves, having an agreement <clears throat> and running that kind of system where each of those banks are free to produce banknotes. But but would, I promise this is the last one just to make sure I want to know what your view is. On that thing, when you said if they asked you for advice, you would say, well, here, conduct your operations such that in the aggregate and you know Canadian NGDP grows at such and such percent. Would they look at that and say, oh, but we can make more money if we make more profit if we do a different policy? Or would you actually think you would just hard, help them to see to that actually is um, a profit maximizing? Yeah, it's outcome. hard to say. It's it's not clear to me that it would be the profit maximizing policy. And by the way, just as an aside, I think if Canada got out of the money business, Canadian government, I mean, um, the Canadians might just adopt the U.S. dollar. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's pretty hard to get a, a libertarian outcome if if the country that does exactly what you want then adopts the fiat money from a neighboring country, which is <laughs> right, something right. that might occur just again because of network effects. I mean, the U.S. dollar is mm-hmm. so well established that even when it was mismanaged in the 1970s pretty badly or in the 30s, people didn't just start using like Swiss francs, right, in the right. 1970s in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's, it just has a lot of inertia due to network effects. And so... I, that's why I'm, I'm a little less exercised about this issue than some libertarians. I'm I'm pretty content to, um, you know, leave that basic role to the government, but just dramatically improve the system. Mostly because if I think the system works well, then libertarian policies are more popular in other areas of life because it seems like capitalism is stable. Then and there's right, less right. demand for socialism if we don't have these great depressions and great recessions every so often. Okay, so if if the Fed hadn't screwed up and had tight policy in the early 30s, then maybe the New Deal wouldn't have happened. That, that sort of idea? Exactly. And if Argentina hadn't screwed up in the late 90s and early 2000s, they wouldn't have had a leftward shift. And if we mm-hmm. hadn't screwed up in 2008 and nine, we wouldn't have had this recent leftward shift in mainstream economics. Right. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, well put, and I certainly understand your perspective. Well, uh, folks, my guest has been Scott Sumner for links, everything Scott talked about. I'll give links to it. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 204. Scott, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Bob, I enjoyed it. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.